Uh, good morning and welcome to Redemption Arcadia. We're glad that you're here. Um, this, is, uh, this, is, this is one of those calendar quirks. It's a calendar phenomenon that happens once every five, six, or seven years when July 4th occurs on a Wednesday. And so we don't know if this is the long weekend or next weekend is a long weekend. And so this is at literally the longest weekend of the year. It's nine days. So happy long weekend uh, to you. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. So I know some of you have to work this week, so figure that out. You should be off all week with pay, okay? Send them to me. Um, welcome. We are Redemption Church. Uh, we're one church with 10 congregations. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused. And of course, we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We don't segment anything. Um, I have one announcement uh, for, uh, for us, and that's uh, a week from this Thursday night. So on July 12th is our monthly uh, prayer night with James Journey leading it, and it'll be right here in this, uh, in this room right here. So uh, at 6.30, come on in. It's a great prayer night. We pray for the nation. We pray for the world. We pray for churches. We pray for our church. Uh, we pray for the lost. Uh, we pray for those who desperately need Jesus. And so uh, one other thing that we normally do is our all of life interviews. And some of you are going to recognize the guy we're going to talk to this morning. So this morning's All of Life interview is with Ken Dickinson, so welcome Ken up to the platform. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. All right, so Stephanie wanted me to ask you right out of the gate, why did you abandon us? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's, that's a tricky question. Put him right on the spot. All See, right. you, weren't re you weren't ready for oh, that. Oh, well. Considering all of life is all for Jesus, I wanted to take what I learned from you guys here and have the opportunity to love more people. Oh. It's your coaching helping okay, with that. Okay, thank you, thank, thank you. you. I appreciate that. So, Ken, Ken, tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, and what church you attend now. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, um, my name is Ken Dickinson. I uh, I go to Redemption Church Alhambra, which is down the down the road here. Um, my uh, my history here is I was able to uh, serve you guys for about four or five years. Um, so I was like the uh, guy that you would try and find if the AC wasn't working. I try and hide sometimes because of that. Um, <laughs> but I'd show up and make sure everyone was cool and, and good to go. Um, so now I, I work at uh, Chick-fil-A down the road here. That's where I can have opportunities to, to love on people a bit more. And um, people are always excited to be there. Uh, it's not because of me. I know why you guys are there. So it's the chicken, right? It's the chicken. Okay. So tell us, I, now, I, I, know, I know we told you the questions we were going to ask you in a certain right. order. I've forgotten the order, okay. so I'm sorry about that. Tell us how working at Chick-fil-A gives you a unique vantage point into the brokenness of people. Sure, sure. So like I was saying, like, you could get to experience the, uh, seeing more people. Uh, food transcends everything. Everybody's got to eat, and everyone likes to eat good food. And so what's really neat is where it's situated is uh, like kind of right in between uh, two places I got to serve for a long time. So you guys here at Arcadia and also at Redemption Church Alhambra. So I get to see uh, different classes of people. So you can see Ferraris going through the drive-thru, and you can also see trucks barely. They shouldn't be on the road at all. Um, <laughs> but you get to see these people. You can feel the tension, too, when you're in the restaurant. And, uh, but you can see people just being excited about being there with each other, having food. Um, and also one time I was uh, working, making some lemonade. And I looked out onto the counter, and I could see these two women out there. And they're both refugees from African countries. And they were the first people that people got to see when they came into the restaurant. So you get to see how this bad situation um, that people got to be out of and now are in uh, the U.S. living lives uh, that can, they can now flourish in 
are now loving other people because of it. So that was pretty cool. That's awesome. So how, that leads well into this next question. How does, how does working there help you to see God's love and the gospel transforming people? Sure. Yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a really cool way of, of like giving, loving your neighbor. Like you can give value to people. Like everyone has intrinsic value. Like that's why we shook hands and, and looked in each other's eyes. There's another image bearer of God. There's also other ways you can give value too, like through your attention, through your um, approval, through your acceptance, and just being present with people. So uh, one of the things we get to do there is like one of the, like, the least rushed times, even though we have tons of people come through, is we try and have a great experience for people to come in and feel like this is one of the least rushed times, and you can just be present with somebody and care for them and make sure they have a good meal. And also with our team members there, we get to have this idea of I am third. So uh, customers first, team members second, then you last. Um, kind of the platinum rule, thinking of others' needs before your own. So taking that golden rule that we should all know, like treat your neighbor as you want yourself, but even going a further step and, and showing a lot of more value and care for people. Right. Those are ways that you're able to love your neighbor, right. even in the marketplace, and right. not bifurcate the gospel from that, right? Exactly. Anything else you want to add? Sure. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the ways we get to uh, show like God's work is through our creativity, through some order, through service, and care for others, like making this uh, power of moments. Um, it's a book by uh, uh, Dan and, and uh, Chip, I'm gonna get their last name wrong, but uh, having the time where we can uh, have people come in at like a long drive-through, um, but then we get to meet them with a smile, they get to wait, and then they get their food. Like there's these, these, uh, these pivotal times where there's highs and lows in it, and we get to make that happen. And one of the things I did uh, that I learned from there that I applied to my life is in our RC times, looking back over the year, because our life all happens together with one another, especially through RCs, and looking at the highs and lows, the struggles, the, the joys, and seeing those times and then celebrating them at the end. And that's power of moments that we get to create. So that's something I learned and I've tried to apply to my life as well. That corner, I, this, is, this wasn't on the list. It just is, I'm just curious. That corner, 16th Street and Camelback, one of the busiest intersections right. in, this, in the city, right? Do you ever have a problem with traffic with the drive-through there? Oh boy, it goes all the way back to Target and beyond, but we get them through. But you keep them in the parking lot. We keep lot. them through, yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Ken, we appreciate you coming and, and sharing, and, and we are glad that you're still a part of Redemption Church. That's really important to us, and uh, we love the way uh, you see the gospel working itself out in the marketplace that way. So let me pray for you guys, you. and, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, get the, the scripture reader up here. Lord God, we thank you for... Uh, Ken, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are continuing to work in his life, that he understands how the gospel transcends all contexts and all situations, and that he's able to see that in his work, and that he's able to serve his uh, neighbor and, and show the love of God in the midst of uh, a really broken world. And he gets to see, he has a unique vantage point of all of that uh, at 16th and Camelback. So God, we pray that you'd bless him and empower him, continue to um, lead him and to equip him and to give him wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, buddy. See you at 1045. <laughs> and now, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. So we are in Ephesians 4, continuing to work our way uh, through this letter that Paul wrote uh, while he was in prison in Rome toward the end of his um, life. And uh, we are kind of, the way Luke set this up, um, he, he, he puts together the preaching calendar for us every year. He's the pastor at Redemption Gateway. Uh, we have kind of a mini-series now for this particular paragraph that um, a- Ashley just read through. Um, Ephesians 4:25 through 32 is one of the weightiest and most famous passages in the New Testament. Uh, it's concentrated and iconic. Uh, when I became a new believer, um, that's weird. I don't think you need the word new. When I became a believer... Um, that this was like one of the first paragraphs in the New Testament that I began to dive into and, and learn. And I think a lot of other people have that uh, same experience. And when Paul says at the beginning of chapter 4, when he transitions from doctrine into application, walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling in the gospel, the items he discusses in these eight verses that we're going to look at over the next five years are examples of what that walk looks like when it is informed by the wisdom of God and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like. Uh, these, these, this isn't comprehensive, but it's, they are examples of what it's looking like. And so we're going to spend the next five weeks in this paragraph, and we're only going to unpack verse 25 today. This verse is something like a thesis statement that Paul makes to prepare us for uh, the rest of this long paragraph and everything that he discusses going forward. So this, this, this verse is like perfect for a three-point outline, if you're a three-point outline person. Uh, put away falsehood, speak the truth, and the reason is because we are members of one another. We are a faith community. And then after that, I just want to give you a little preview These are paraphrases of the things that he tells us our walk in the gospel should look like in these next uh, seven verses after verse 25. So here you go. Be wary of anger that leads to sin. Practice self-awareness and discipline when anger rises because there will be anger. Always be ready for Satan to strike even when it seems unlikely And in context, one of the most unlikely times that we might think Satan would attack us is when when we believe our anger is righteous. When we get wrapped up in what we think is righteous anger, man, Satan is rushing right towards you saying, okay, I can use that now. I can create all kinds of problems here. Uh, Don't steal. Embrace work. 
because we were created for it. Be generously aware of others. Uh, Be skillful, careful, and discerning in everything that you say. Be an encourager. Understand context and decorum. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Understand what situation you are approaching, what situation you're walking into, or what situation you're already involved in, and, and behave and communicate in an appropriate manner in the midst of that situation. So understand context and decorum. Decorum is the appropriate behavior in a situation. Spread grace. Live in deference to the Holy Spirit. Remember who you are in Christ. Excavate the root of your frustration and put it away. For me personally, this might be the most challenging thing on the list. Care about and be useful to others. The Greek word translated kind literally means humbly useful. It's not just opening a door for somebody. It's through humility serving others. That's what the Greek understanding of kind is. Though it is easier and often more rational to have a hard heart, embrace a soft heart. And then finally, again, remember who you are in Christ. So we're going to look at all of those in the next four weeks. Today we're going to unpack his thesis statement. So let's talk about this catalytic verse 25 and these three starting statements of falsehoods, truth, and remembering that we are members of one another. Um, I, I read a lot, and I read, as usual, a number of commentaries on the passage to see what they had to say. The most interesting thing I observed about this verse, verse 25, is it seemed to me that the commentaries spent about 90% of their time talking about falsehood and only about 10% of the time talking about what truth is, which I thought was, was maybe a little bit unbalanced, but I actually found it pretty helpful, as a matter of fact. So, falsehoods. Let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, the word translated falsehoods is the Greek word pseudos. It's where we get the word pseudo. So, what does pseudo mean? Pseudo means fake, right? You're tracking here? It also means an intentional lie. So, in other words, you're, you're presenting truth, but it's, it's fake. That's what that's what it means um, to, to, to put away falsehoods. One other little grammatical thing just to mention. I looked at uh, dozens of translations of this verse, and there are only a few that translate it the way the English Standard Version does, which is the version we use, which is having put away falsehoods. Most of the translations uh, state it as more of an indicative or a command, put away falsehoods, or they they say it's something that you're constantly doing, putting away falsehoods. There was also one translation that just said this, stop telling lies, (laughs) kind of like that translation. So what's the problem with pseudos? What's the problem with, with falsehoods? Falsehoods dissolve the bonds of community and relationship. Falsehoods break trust. Falsehoods disintegrate. So 
the word integrity or integration means completeness or whole. The prefix dis is, is a negation. And so disintegrate, when, when we speak in falsehoods to each other, when we're fake with each other, we blow apart community and relationships. Is that not true? Okay. Falsehoods are almost always put, they, they almost always put the good of the individual above the good of the community and of relationships. Falsehoods almost always put the good of the individual above the good of relationships and community. When Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, he says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's really saying is when you're getting ready to do something or say something, and what you do or say affects more than just you, you need to consider the other person first. It's not that you don't get to consider yourself, but you need to consider the other person first. Have you ever gotten into a partnership or a friendship, and in the beginning you've said, I will never do anything to betray you or to take advantage of the relationship or to benefit me at the expense of you, and then suddenly down the road you're faced with that decision. If I go this way, I'll benefit and my friend or my partner won't. And if I go this way, my friend or my partner benefits, but I won't, I'm going to go this way. That's what Paul is talking about. Falsehoods almost always put the good of the individual above the good of the relationship in the community. That's not what the gospel is about. And then falsehoods are generally born of pride, selfishness, and fear. Those are not good motivators for behavior. Have you found that? They're not good motivators for behavior. I, I have rarely, if ever, done anything admirable when I've been motivated by selfishness, pride, or even fear. Rarely. Love is a great motivator. Compassion, wisdom, mercy, grace, courage. Those are great motivators. And think about Jesus. Those are the motivators that sent Jesus to the cross. He did not go to the cross out of pride, selfishness, and fear. If he was motivated by pride, selfishness, and fear, he wouldn't have been Jesus. I get that. But if he had been motivated by those things, understand, he never would have gone to the cross. He would have walked away from that, and you and I wouldn't be here this morning. But let me also ask this question about the lying, the falsehoods, and the deceptions. Why would Paul bring this up in the first place? You, you think about that. Why would he bring that up? In, it, seems, it seems odd. I've had a, a number of these conversations with people. This just seems a little weird. We're Christians, aren't we? Isn't it a foregone conclusion that we don't lie? Isn't it? You can always trust a Christian. And wouldn't it be a foregone Nervous laughter. Wouldn't it be a foregone, <laughs> foregone conclusion that the Ephesians Christians would never deceive each other or speak in falsehoods to each other? Mm, no, not, not, not a trick question. Okay? And a lot of it has been written about this. Uh, we've talked about this before. Pride is the single greatest motivating factor for sin. C.S. Lewis says it's the primary sin. All sin can be traced back through pride initially. We see it also in Genesis chapter 3. We see it throughout the Bible. I mean, it was pride that started this whole thing in Genesis 3. And then we see it throughout the Bible. Think about King David. His greatest sin struggles were almost always motivated by pride. 
even the Bathsheba incident, that was, that was way more about pride than it was even about lust. All of those things, the murder, the adultery, all of that. And, and the most common sins manifested by pride, easy. Deception, hiddenness, lying, fraud, duplicity, fabrication, and dishonesty. Those are all falsehoods. It's all pseudos. And, and they are the single greatest challenge even redeemed believers have in, termed, in terms of, of what we need to get rid of, what, what Paul says we need to put away. I mentioned this a while back. Uh, there was a book written late uh, 2017 by a guy named Seth Davidovitz called Everybody's, Everybody Lies. That's the title of the book, Everybody Lies. Davidovitz is a PhD in economics and he's a journalist. He wrote this big book showing the research is conclusive. Every, so somebody asked, well, why the title? Well, that's pretty easy. It's because everybody lies. Everybody, and I know, this makes people so uncomfortable. I teach this even in Com 100, and the students just push back on this. They've never had anybody tell them that they're liars. They haven't. It's amazing. This self-esteem thing has gotten to the point where we just accept falsehoods all the time because we don't want to damage anybody's self-esteem. Uh, in our, in our uh, Com, our communication textbook, uh, DeVito, this is uh, Joseph DeVito, not Danny DeVito. Joseph DeVito wrote our textbook. De DeVito cites research that says that human beings, when they're awake and they're relating with other people, on average lie 18 times an hour. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's why I'm trying to shorten my sermons. I, I know, some of you are feeling, hey, that guy's lie-shaming me right now. No, I'm not lie-shaming you, okay? It's just a fact, all right? Uh, here's another one. 60% um, of information now on resumes is, is, is not true. It's been falsified or inaccurate in some way. That's a euphemism for lie. It's inaccurate. It's not up to date. 60%, so we're getting our name right. Maybe. Our Twitter handle got that right. That's about it. Um, the only area, this is what I found too, the only area in the universe now where human beings don't lie is on their social media profiles. It's the only place. <laughs> Let me ask you, some of you that are really struggling with this, because I know, just from experience, those of you who are parents, did you have to teach your children how to lie, or did they figure that one out on their own? What do you have to teach them? You have to teach them how to tell the truth, right? Okay. And by the way, no, 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 no. They did not learn how to lie from the neighbor's kid or your spouse. They didn't. Just like you and me, they were born into it. We came out lying. We couldn't even say anything yet, and we came out lying. Listen, there's this great theologian. His name is Woody Allen. Listen to what he has to say. <laughs> we either rationalize or we deny, or we couldn't go on living. Think about that statement. I know, Woody Allen is one of the most depraved individuals alive. I get that all the time. Why do you like Woody Allen? Here's why. 
in spite of his depravity, he has maybe, and it, maybe it's because of his depravity, he has some of the greatest insights into human nature that I've ever encountered in my life. Think about that statement. We, we either rationalize or we deny, or we couldn't go on living. Rationalizing is lying to ourself. Denying is lying to others. We lie to ourselves. By the way, Davidovitz's book, Everybody Lies, he says the primary person we lie to, the one we lie to the most is ourselves. Okay, so we rationalize, we lie to ourselves, and we deny, we lie to others. This is part of, here you go, let me go a little deeper with, with um, the Apostle Woody here. Um, <laughs> he says that, that humanity, human beings' life, is divided into two categories, the horrible and the miserable. And this is on his good day, by the way, okay? The horrible and the miserable. He says the, the horrible are people who have suffered um, very uh, rare, unique tragedies in their life. They've, they've, they've had amputations, they're, they're blind, they've lost a, a loved one. Something like that. He said that's, that's the horrible and he says, everybody else is just miserable. And then he says, and so you should be thankful if you're just miserable. That's his view on life. So think about this statement. We either uh, rationalize or we deny or we wouldn't be able to go on living. Actually, he's correct as far as it goes. As far as it goes, he's correct. Without the gospel, without an understanding of who Jesus is, without the love the grace, the unconditional mercy that Jesus gives us, that's the life that we are destined to, a life of misery, rationalization, and denial. The problem with Woody Allen is he doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know the gospel. So it's true as far as it goes, but Jesus is the only one who can save us from this vanity. And again, go back to Genesis 3. What, by the way, if, you're, if you've never read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you've been coming here for a while, and you've noticed that I, that I talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 a lot, and you're hoping that I'll quit because you don't know what I'm talking about, just go read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It'll help you. I'll bring it up almost every week, okay? If you don't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're going to really struggle with the rest of the Bible. That's just, that's just true. So go back to Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve sin, the first sin, and introduced sin into humanity, what were their first actions? What were the first things that they did? Hiddenness, blame-shifting, rationalization, lying, mistrust, suspicion, essentially being false to each other, being false to God, and being false to themselves. Right out of the gate. Nothing else. Those are the first things that happened. See, we need the redemption and victory of Jesus. This thing's a, a killer, and take it from me, one of the world's top liars, okay? And actually, I'm tied for first with everybody else, okay? So what about speaking the truth? What is truth? <laughs> that question has been around for millennia. And as long as we've had recorded history, and not just since the 60s, Everybody who grew up in the 60s think, they're, think they're, they're the first ones to ever ask this question. No, they're not, okay? But as long as we've had recorded history, human beings aren't supposed to give a definitive answer to that question, what is true? We keep asking it, but if anybody ever answers it, they're immediately marginalized or, or called names. We're just not allowed. 
It's Deepak Chopra saying, I have spent my entire life in the pursuit of truth, but I will call anyone a liar who claims to have found it. See, anybody who stakes a claim to truth is thought to be either arrogant or insane. That's a pretty good choice either way. Even Pilate, so you think about Pontius Pilate, John chapter 18, 2,100 years ago, he asked Jesus, what is truth? He didn't expect an answer, and he's standing in front of the one, yes, that's exactly right, thank you. He's standing in front of the one that Paul says is truth. That's the irony of that, of that exchange between Pilate and Jesus. I just kind of see Jesus sitting there going, just never going to get it. Standing right in front of you and, and you, and you, and you don't get it. But he didn't expect an answer. He asked the question rhetorically. He didn't expect an answer. In his eyes, in the world's eyes, in the culture's eyes, just like today, that would be foolish to try to answer that question. So here's Paul uh, when he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, uh, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Wisdom of God is foolishness to man. And yet, so think about this now. Think about this. I love, you know I love irony, and I, I love the irony of this. What is one of the most important dogmatic cultural mandates that you and I hear all the time? I just need to be true to myself. Well, if we can't define truth, what, is it, what does it mean to be true to yourself? Come on, answer that question. You can't. You can't answer that question. So there's no truth, but I'm going to be true to myself. You should write for Dr. Seuss. That's, what, that's who you should write for. Okay? I love what Hannah Anderson wrote about this. I found that embracing the phrase, being true to myself never means embracing any semblance whatsoever of self-awareness, but rather ruthlessly embraces as unquestionably true my emotional response to the world in my circumstances. That is a keen insight. By the way, that's a great book, Humble Roots. So obviously, logically, there is truth. So what is truth? Paul says it in Ephesians 4.21. We looked at it recently. Jesus is truth. When Paul says, speak truth to one another, he calls us to be rooted in Jesus, talking about Jesus, and reflecting on Jesus. Uh, the pastor and, and author Jeff Vanderstelt calls it gospel fluency. Uh, Jesus is truth. We also need to understand that Jesus is also the creator. God created everything through Jesus. He's the author of the universe. So there's, there's truth in creation as well. We can look around and see the truth of God revealed to us through creation. We can see the grace of God revealed through creation. And not only is Jesus creator, but he's also the author of the word. He's the author of the Bible. So the Bible is truth. The Bible does not contain truth. It is truth. If the Bible only contained truth, then we'd have to go looking for it because it means some, part of the some parts of the Bible are not true. And then who gets to be the arbiters of which parts of the Bible is true and which parts aren't? Who gets to decide that? And, and, and that means that we become God. That's, that's the only, that we become God. If we're the ones deciding what's true and what's not, 
we're filtering God's word through our life experience and, and, and pushing away all the things that we don't like or uncomfortable or dif- difficult or disruptive and, and we don't want to do, we become God in our own eyes. We would never probably say that out loud, but functionally we become God. And, and I'm not that interested in that. I don't, think, I, I don't think any of you want me to be God. I really don't want any of you to be God. That would be a problem. Uh, listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. So he's writing about the same time to the church in Philippi from prison. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, notice true is first. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Truth is real and it can be known, and we should dwell in it. Paul says, when he says think about those things, in the Greek there's a, there's a prefix, hyper, hippo, which literally means you're just supposed to dwell. It's, it's the, here, here's the picture it's supposed to bring up. You ever seen a cow chewing cud for hours on end? Okay. It's called ruminating. We're supposed to ruminate on truth. Things that are praiseworthy, excellent, honorable. We're supposed to not just think about them passingly, but but really dwell on those. C.S. Lewis says this. We are so busy doing things with Scripture that we give it too little chance to work on us. Thus, increasingly, when we read Scripture, we only meet ourselves. When reading the Bible, we must always look, listen, receive, and get ourselves out of the way because it is true. Paul makes the case here that we live in truth with with each other because we are members of one another. Now, I want to make sure that we understand what speaking the truth to one another doesn't mean. Anybody, here's my movie reference for the morning. Anybody see Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey? Anybody see that? Okay, okay. Um, what I found interesting about that movie is that it wasn't just uh, that Jim Carrey's character couldn't lie for 24 hours. If that's all it was, he just wouldn't speak and he'd avoid people and there wouldn't be much of a screenplay or a story and the movie wouldn't have been as popular as it was. That wasn't the curse. The curse, uh, the curse actually, w- what happened with the curse was it made him say everything he was thinking. No matter what popped into his head, he had to say it. No matter what popped into his head, he had to say it. Okay? You ever meet someone like that? The person like that lives voluntarily under the liar, liar curse. Okay? They live by the wonderful life philosophy that every thought that enters their head must be verbalized no matter how damaging. And then they say these magical words, hey, I just speak the truth. Well, that makes it all better, right? It's not what Paul's saying here. He is saying, and we're going to see this in the verses to come, He's saying that there is a time and a place and a methodology for everything that needs to be expressed. You don't just go around wielding truth like a weapon. 
The gospel and the truth of Jesus and his word must be tempered with wisdom, discernment, love, and grace. And again, it's because we're members of one another. So that last clause, members of one another. New Testament scholar Charles Ellicott writes this, Truth is the first condition of mutual confidence, which is the basis of all unity. Therefore, it is the first duty of each of us in our relationship with others as members of one another in the church. Members of one another points us to that body illustration that Paul constantly uses when he talks about the church, when he talks about the faith community. So, so this really got me thinking about bodies and members of a body, okay? Consider the members of your own body and how they work together. So think, think about this in, in the... Think about this now. In the human body, your body, my body, harmony is observed. Harmony is expected. Harmony is essential. How disastrous is it when one of our body members deceive the other body members? You think about that. Just think about that. Our unwavering assumption is that the members of our own bodies, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, every member of our body, no matter what, we think that they're working together, they're harmonized, and they would never betray one another. Because if if one member betrays us, it's a disaster. Think about the person who got the winning lottery numbers. When they first look at that ticket, what do they do? They blink. They take a second look. Because if their eyes deceive them about those numbers, that would be awful, right? In the middle of your celebration dance to find out you, your eyes deceived you about the numbers. Wouldn't that be? Okay, this illustration is not resonating with most of you. So how about this one? All right. My mother spent the last 10 years of her life with progressing Alzheimer's disease, and her greatest frustration was that her mind was betraying her. It was playing tricks on her. It wasn't being honest with her. Think about autoimmune diseases. Your body, something in your body is deceiving your body into attacking itself. It's, those are like awful, awful diseases. One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, has lupus horrible. It's an autoimmune disease. His body can't help but just constantly attack himself. It's deception. What happens when we hear something that wasn't actually produced? You ever done that? You hear something wrong? Somebody actually play an audio back for you and say, you heard this wrong. Probably the worst argument I ever had with Jackie was when I heard something incorrectly. In a sense, okay, some of you are like, yeah, you just heard what you wanted to hear. Something, either my mind or my ears, deceived me, one of the two. And if you don't think it's painful, here I am remembering it years later. It's painful when members deceive other members. And the fact that we are members of one another, the Bible says, the Bible says very clearly in Ephesians 2 and in other places that we are joined together as one flesh. The fact that we are members of one another means that we must put away falsehood and deal with each other in truth. We must aspire to be as much like Jesus as we can be to each other. Our yes needs to be yes, our no needs to be no. And, and here's another thing, 
when we say no, others need to respect the no and not try to manipulate a yes. Now, we've mostly talked about this principle of falsehoods and truth in the context of the faith community because that's the context in which Paul writes it in. But it's also an important part of gospel business for people who are followers of Christ in dealing with the rest of the world as well. You heard Ken up here talking about that. When we're in relationship with people who are not Christians, people who do not attend church, and people who might even be antagonistic to our faith, we need to live by this principle then too. Because here you go, Scripture says God hates lies. He hates lies. So this applies everywhere else too. It applies in the marketplace. It, don't laugh. It applies in politics. It applies in school. It applies in our neighborhood. It applies in our weekly poker game. Yes, even there. We are members of one another. We are the body. And that means that we should always speak truth to one another. But God says that we are to take that ethic outside of the body as well. Because that is possibly the greatest way that you and I can be light in a dark world. And we are called to be light in this dark world. To live by this ethic of putting away falsehoods and and speaking the truth to one another as if we are members with them too. So falsehoods, truth, members of one another. When, When we study... Everything that follows in the next seven verses, which we have four weeks now to do, we can see how these three items help to build the foundation of walking out this gospel life that Paul calls us to. So understand, Jesus didn't die so that you and I could go on a millennia-long debate about what truth is. Jesus died because he is truth. He died because he values our image-bearing of God relationality and community And he wants us to thrive in that. And the gospel, which is our sin paid for by Jesus on the cross, that's the gospel, is the single greatest gift ever given to this universe. And Paul is calling us to live in light of that, pun intended. Let's pray together. Lord God, we we pray as we work through this passage for the next four or five weeks that you would open our hearts and our minds to Uh, many of the challenging and disorienting things that that Paul has for us. We pray that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us and empower us and equip us to be able to live this life that Paul calls us to in this paragraph. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.